0: I think it's an easily forgotten aspect of the Christian life, but there's no mistaking it. Uh, God desires obedience. God looks for obedience in us, His children. Uh, being disciples involves uh, practicing obedience, as Jesus said in John 14:15, "If you love me, you will obey what I command." Uh, Making disciples, he says, involves teaching obedience. We see this in Matthew 28, where Jesus said, uh, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. But the problem for us is this. So often, we walk in disobedience. Now, why is that? Have you ever stopped to consider that? Uh, You could put it down, I suppose, to misplaced desires, We love something more than we love God. That's at the heart of idolatry in the Bible. Uh, You could put it down to just a general lack of desire that we just can't be bothered. Uh, You could put it down to an abuse of God's grace. He'll forgive us anyway, so why bother obeying him in this particular way? But could it be that in our heart of hearts, we walk by, now listen, sight and not by faith. Could it be that we walk by sight and not by faith? That's what be- was behind Julie's disobedience. Julie was someone who was always passing up lots of good opportunities to tell other people about Jesus. Now, she would often put that down to her own inadequacies, you know, oh, I don't know enough, I'm just not well enough prepared, etc. But the reality is, Julie does not trust God's promise to help her as she's sharing the gospel. And that's the real reason why she doesn't share the gospel. After all, has God not said to her, I've put my spirit in you to help you speak. And I've put my spirit in the world to help them hear. So trust me, walk in faith, live by faith, not by sight. Go for it. But she doesn't. She lives by sight, not by faith. Or what about Robbie? Robbie has, uh, for over 10 years, pushed back on opportunities and encouragements to give up his job and go into pastoral ministry. He often puts that down to his circumstances. Oh, the timing's just not right. It's too big a hit for this drop in salary, etc. That's what he says to himself. But the reality is, Robbie doesn't trust God enough to provide for him in all the ways that God says he will. After all, God has said, now this is not, of course, a command where you can look for a specific verse, but God has said that if we have this internal desire drawing us towards ministry, and if the local church is encouraging us, and if you like pushing and encouraging us into ministry, then we should at least take the first step in exploring it. But, Robbie doesn't. He lives by sight and not by faith. What about us? In the day-to-day things of the commands that God gives to us regarding the things that he requires of us, if we walk by sight and not by faith, it proves to be A problem for us. How often do we disobey God because we just don't really believe He'll provide for us if we obey Him, whether in areas of happiness or satisfaction or contentment or peace or strength or endurance or currency or in life? That's a massive problem because if we walk by sight and not by faith, it'll prove to be a terrible hindrance on our growth in our faith and our witness in our community. So how is the question we're asking. How do we learn to walk in greater obedience to God? Well, an obvious answer to that is we start to study the Bible, examining those who live by faith and not by sight, and understanding God and his wonderful provision, his incredible faithfulness towards those who have been bold enough to base their decisions not on the things that are tangibly in front of them, but their trust in God's provision. And there are a few places that teach us those things, quite like Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham here, as he is in Hebrews 11, which uh, commits a, certain, a, a good deal of text to Abraham's life, he's held up for us, As the man of faith. And we've seen this, haven't we, in our series so far? There have been some stunning peaks in Abraham's life. Like in chapter 12, uh, as God says, leave, go. Abraham says, okay. And off he goes. It's incredible faith. Chapter 15, off you go outside, look up at the stars, so shall your offspring be, promised God. Okay, Abraham believed God's. And it was credited to him as righteousness. But while there have been some stunning peaks, there have been some shocking troughs, haven't there? Like the Hagar affair. And God has not been slow, as we've gone along in this section of Genesis, to either commend Abraham's faith or condemn his lack of it. But this, this one, this story, chapter 22 of Abraham and Isaac. This is Everest. And it's here that we find some of the greatest reasons to take God at His word and walk in obedience to His commands. And I'd like to walk us through this passage in three points tonight. And the first is this number one, that God tests our faith. This is verses one and two. Now, this is a fact for us God regularly tests our faith. If you look with me at verse one, you will see he was testing Abraham's faith. Sometime later, uh, we read there, that is, sometime after the long awaited birth of Isaac that we saw in verses one to seven of chapter twenty one. And then after that, the excuse me <coughs> the heart wrenching eviction of an increasingly awkward and wicked Ishmael in verses eight to twenty-one. And sometime later, after this peacekeeping agreement with the Philistine king, which essentially allowed Abraham to settle in this promised land, he's there in the place that God had promised him in verses 22 to 34 of chapter 21. But some time later, Abra- God tested Abraham. Now you might ask, well, hasn't he done that enough? Hasn't Abraham done enough to, to prove that he believes in God already? Well, why does God test us? You might think that of Abraham. You might think that of yourself. Why does he test us? I mean, does God not know where we're at already? Now, you might think about that as a conclusion when you read verse 12, when after the event, God says, now I know. But it's not that God didn't know, and has all of a sudden, by Abraham's act, come to realize, oh, that's right, you do actually have it. No, God is omniscient. He already knows all things. So what's he doing here? Is he just being mean, like putting us, like Abraham, under pressure? It reminds me of uh, my lecturer in New Testament Greek when I first went to Bible college. On that first day when we were lumped with the whole semesters uh, folder. It was about that size, I think, and lumped in front of us and he spent ages and ages going through, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to do it and he went on for a long time and uh, one of my friends across the classroom put his hand up and just said, when's the first test? And his response was, every day's a test. <laughs> said it with wicked glee, but that's not what God's doing. It is true that every every uh, option that lies before us, every opportunity to obey, disobey, every opportunity, everything before us is a test for obedience or disobedience. But God's not being mean. So what is he doing? Well, he's helping us. He's showing us something about ourselves and showing us at the same time something very important about him. And here's where we start to see in this passage and in others that God's tests are the training ground for stretching and exercising faith. Uh, it's like building muscle. The key to growing stronger is to stretch and exercise both the muscle itself and the fascia, the membrane containing the muscle. And it's the same with faith. You know, God tests our faith in order to grow it. And so much of the time, in order to actually prove it to us, to prove to us the quality of, And the extent of our trust in him. And the quality and the extent of his provision. That's exactly what he's doing here with Abraham as he faces this ultimate test. Now we have to acknowledge that some tests are more testing than others. They stretch us more than others. Look with me at verse 2. Listen to how excruciatingly painful this test sounds. God said to Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. That is an appeasing sacrifice for a family's sin." On a mountain that I will show you. Now you might think, what on earth is God doing in this moment? What is he doing? I mean, hasn't God already condemned murder in chapter 9 of Genesis? Yes, he has. Doesn't he actually condemn the taking of another person's life again and again throughout the Bible, even in the Ten Commandments? You shall not murder. Yes. Doesn't he specifically promise blistering wrath on the child sacrificers of other religions of the day? Yes. And hang on, isn't this kid, Isaac, the child of promise through whom all nations will be blessed? Our hope today was based on this kid's survival. Yes. So what is God doing here? breaking his promise, changing his mind, revealing something he's managed to keep tucked away about his character for a long time and in this one moment of weakness let something slip? No. He's true to himself and to his word. So what is going on? Well, one thing must be kept in mind. God knew the outcome and never planned to hurt the boy. But two important things must be realized alongside that. One, one, That God is giving us an example in Abraham of phenomenal faith exercised in response to a unique and never again in the Bible to be repeated request as an indicator of the kind of obedience that fullness of faith in normal people like us brings. And secondly, God is preparing us to understand the full extent of his love and provision for us by enacting in Genesis 2 a shadow of what he would do with his one and only son 2,000 years later on the same hill. We'll get to that. For the moment, the question is, what will Abraham do? Can you imagine hearing that instruction God, I think, deliberately slows it down. And with every little indication of who it is God's talking about for the sacrifice and what he's asking him to do, must have cut Abraham's heart. Take your son. Oh, what a nightmare. Your only son, by virtue of Ishmael's eviction, whom you love. The one that your heart is wrapped up with. And then he says his name Isaac. Laughter. Take him. Slay him. What would Abraham do? Well, this is point two. Faithful believers obey God. This is what we see in verses 3 to 12. Abraham, in response to God's command, demonstrates exceptional obedience. When you look with me at verse 3, you see that he wastes no time in obeying God. If ever there was a day to hit that alarm clock and pull the covers back over your head for another couple of hours, it was this one. But early the the next day, he got up, got everything ready, and got going. Wasted no time. And then when you look at verses 4 to 10, even on the journey he demonstrates exceptional obedience by the fact that there's no sign of wavering with him. Verse four, when he saw the place that God had told him to go to, you don't read that he panicked and held a wee conference with Isaac and his servants who were with him and said, you know what, there's no, there's no, this is my freak out moment, I'm out of here, I'm not doing this. There's no sign of that. He just told his servants to wait there while he and the boy went on towards the mountain. And then in verses five to eight, When he chatted with Isaac on the way, he shows no real sign of turmoil or inner wrangling. I mean, if that was me or one of my kids, I wouldn't have been able to look at them. Verse 9, when he and Isaac got to the place of sacrifice, still he didn't waver. Look at this. Verse 9 in Fallen, just sounds so mechanical. Abraham built an altar, arranged the wood, bound his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, reached out his hand took the knife to slay his son. It's so mechanical. What is going on in this boy? Is he in shock? Is he, is he psychopathic, numbing himself for what he's about to do? No. Even though there is no mention of emotion in this passage, actually, this would have been an incredibly difficult thing to do. So why does he take these steps? The short answer to that question is, Because of all that God has said. And I'm not just talking about the instructions given in verse 2. I'm talking about all that God has said to him throughout his life. For the picture that he has built up for the God he has come to know. And it's in that God and all that he has said that provides the construct of his faith. And the demonstration of it. Because that's what we see. He doesn't just demonstrate exceptional obedience. He demonstrates exceptional faith. And that's obvious for us. (coughs) Excuse me. When you look harder at the text. When you look harder at the text. You see the clues that show that Abraham believed God would preserve Isaac. Clue number one I think is in verse five. Where he says to his servants. We will worship. And then we, plural, will come back to you. Now he's not talking about bringing a body back because it's a burnt offering. Everything's consumed. He's saying we go, two would go. In Abraham's eyes, two would come back. Clue two is in verse eight. Look with me, where Abraham answers Isaac's question Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering was Abraham's response. Now, the word provide in Hebrew is the word see. Actually, the Lord will see the sacrifice. Uh, In other words, the Lord will see to it what he sees and requests, he brings to effect is basically what the Hebrew means. God will supply whatever is necessary for us to do the things that he calls us to do. And what a lesson that is. On the subject of faith. Do you see what's happening here? Abraham is exercising faith. Even as he walks in obedience. What another stunning lesson for us. Think about it. What does Abraham know at this point? What has God told him? Two things really. One, God is going to bless the world through Isaac. And of that, Abraham is sure. Two, God wants Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And that instruction was as clear as day. So picture Abraham trying to figure it out along that initial three-day walk till he spots Mount Moriah and then the further walk with Isaac. Picture him trying to figure it out. Maybe he's thinking, well, you know, if God's going to keep his word to bless the world through Isaac, he's going to have to do something about this sacrifice. He's either going to have to provide a sacrifice in his stead or bring him back from the dead. Hmm. But I guess that Someone rising from the dead has never actually happened in the history of existence. But I guess if God is God, he can make a man of a hundred years have a son. Nothing is too hard from him. We learned that a few weeks ago. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, tell us which one he leaned towards. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So Abraham expected resurrection. Even though he had never heard of one happening before. Because in his mind, he was figuring it out. And that, brothers and sisters, is an Everest faith. That is a peak. That is incredible faith. And it's the kind of faith that God commends. When you look with me at verse 11, you see the angel of the Lord. Now, angel here simply means sent one. Don't think this is uh, just an angel. He's more than a messenger. Verse 16 proves that it's the Lord himself. Verse 12 This messenger says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So what has Abraham's obedience proved? The text says, the answer is always in the text, friends. His fear of God. Now what does that mean? Remember, that's not the I'm scared kind of fear, but the I'm in awe kind of fear. It's reverence wrapped up in love and Abraham's obedience here then proves that he really did grasp who God is in his character and what God is like as an outflow of that what a commendation to receive this is the kind of faith that makes God marvel and here's a lesson for us in this Obedience, brothers and sisters, is the litmus test of our trust in God. Obedience is the litmus test of our trust in God. It's as much of an indicator of the quality and extent of our faith as litmus paper provides the truth over the acidity or alkalinity of any substance. So let me ask, what does our obedience to God's word and instruction tell us about the quality and extent of our faith. In small and everyday things, or even in more stretching things. Listen, we'll never be asked to sacrifice a life, but at times we will be asked or called to costly obedience in following Christ. Following him might cost us relationship, it might cost us money, it might cost us dreams of what a holiday or a retirement might look like, it might cost us our family, but has not Jesus given us his words in Matthew 19 where he said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. He has said that. And obedience is costly. It is. But it's so worth it. And God commends it both with the commendation and provision, uh, with a a well-done good and faithful servant and with the reward, blessing now and later, a crown of life, as James 1.12 tells us. Indeed, that's what Abraham discovered. God not only commended his faith, but provided for him as he exercised it. And that's the very thing that encourages and prompts Future obedience. And this is point three. God provides for all he demands. In verses 13 to 19. Abraham went through the motions, obeyed God, and expected resurrection, but what he got was a substitute. Look with me at verse 13. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. Right at the moment he was told to stop he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering, crucially, instead of his son. And God had provided the sacrifice that Abraham needed in order to fulfill God's command to, at the start, to worship him and through the offering of a sacrifice of sin. And just as Abraham had said, probably with a sense of uncertainty as he was figuring everything out in verse 8, but of this now. He is absolutely certain. The tester is the provider, okay? In every aspect of life, the God who tests us is the God who provides for us. The God who calls us to obey him in A, B, and C is the provider of everything we need for doing A, B, and C. That's what, you see verse 14, we see Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. The Lord will see to it. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Whatever God asks us to do, he'll see to it. What he demands, he affects. Do we believe this? In evangelism, his power. In temptation, a way out. In giving, gifts to give. In ministry, his support. In life. Everything we need, brothers and sisters, do we believe that? But there's more to this passage, isn't there? As verse 14 hints, the grammar police among us may already be twitching at verse 14. The Lord will provide. Dear, dear Abraham, do you not mean the Lord has provided? He's given you the ram. There it is. Well, no, he doesn't mean the Lord has provided. He means the Lord will provide, which means that there is unfinished business, even though we move on after this passage. Isaac had asked, where's the lamb? And that's the kind of question that's going to be asked again and again throughout the Old Testament. Because after the sacrifice has been offered, the question still hangs, because a lamb has not actually been offered. A ram has. And rams and lambs are different. You need the rest of the Bible to help you to look for what Abraham looked forward to. And what was that? The sacrifice of a lamb. Specifically, on that mountain, Moriah, one of four hills that would later make up the skyline of a city we all know today as Jerusalem. Where another son, a one and only son of a father, would also carry wood on his back, and lay himself willingly on an altar of wood as the ultimate sacrifice for sin, the once for all sacrifice for sin. John 19, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and there they crucified. It's pointing forwards to Jesus Christ. Only on that occasion, the Father's hand would not be stayed. There would be no substitute. In fact, the Son is the substitute. That's why he was slain. The Lamb of God, as John had said, who takes away the sins of the world. And as the prophet had said, it was the Father's will to crush him. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. There was no substitute. He was the substitute. But there was resurrection. An actual resurrection at that. An actual resurrection that proves that our sins have been paid for when we put our trust in him. Our lives are transformed when we take hold of him by faith. Our obedience is compellingly energized when his spirit makes his home in us. What a gift! And our future is secure in the day-to-dayness of our obedience when we take him at his word and choose to live by faith and not by sight. And his word... God's word is his promise, his pledge. And if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. If you can't say, the cross of Christ is my favorite place to go, to remember how much of a sinner I am, and yet how much God loves me. Because the cross is the place where Jesus died in my place to take My sin away and to give me new life in his name. If you haven't come to that point, dig into this a lot more. Ask us about it afterwards. There's a prayer team down here. They'd love to help you out. We even run a couple of studies in little small groups of people like you who are thinking about all this. You can go to the Connect Corner afterwards by the exit and they'd be happy to help you out. It's glorious. How this passage points us forward. And we find that fulfillment. And this promise given in verses 15 to 19. Where we see that God swears on the life of the one who cannot lie and cannot die. That's himself. In other words, he's fundamentally trustworthy. He's going to bless Abraham. He's still going to bless all nations through him. How Because when we, even in these moments, brothers and sisters, read of his faith, learning not just from his example, but from this very story that in everything, God provides for us the very things he demands of us in coming to him, righteousness, in living for him, obedience. And to realize that, friends, yes, we will have peaks. Yes, we will have troughs. The truth of the matter is the cross, that sacrifice 2,000 years ago tells us that his grace is sufficient for both. To energize our obedience and to forgive us for our sins. And the key to growing in faith and walking in obedience for the likes of Julie or for Robbie Or for you, or for me, is taking God at His word and trusting God to provide. Let's pray together.